Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Hey, I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, cyber warfare. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. We would like to extend our thanks to our mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997. He has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, let's chat. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. So, Jethro, welcome. All right. Well, welcome. This is going to be a good conversation today. Today we have with us Josh Powell or P squared, which is my favorite nickname. He's been married for 27 years to Stacy. He's got four kids, three daughters and a son. And he spent 23 years in the Marine Corps doing command and control operations and the last five working as a contractor. He spent three years with the Navy working electronic warfare and information operations and the last two working with George Mason University rapid prototyping research center as a senior research faculty focused on airborne networking technologies. Now that may have sounded like a foreign language to you as it did to me when I first met Josh, but let me tell you, we're going to get into some good stuff. So Josh, let's start by just talking about what is hybrid warfare or cyber warfare just to jump right in. Yeah, so hybrid warfare is something that is starting to emerge, right? It's something that's been around since the Revolutionary War, actually. Um, but what it is is uh, utilizing different elements other than just straight on force uh, with people. And so this might come in the form of economics. It might be uh, cyber attacks. It might be information, right? Information operations where you're doing influence campaigns uh, on a population, whether that's at a national scale or at a smaller scale. Mm. So hybrid warfare isn't usually, although it has tenants of, uh, traditional combat related arms, right? Like jets and tanks and some of that other stuff. It's a much more subtle way of warfare, but it still ends up with a lot of the same results. And that is, is as you're attacking the will of a, a nation and trying to break that will prior to any large-scale combat operations before a boot even steps on the ground. 
Yeah, which seems a lot more scary to me because if there are soldiers with guns and tanks in your neighborhood, you know that you're at war. But if there's not that, then sometimes you don't know if you're at war. And so why why does this matter so much right now? Fred and I talk about privacy and keeping track of your digital information and not letting it fall into the wrong hands all the time. But why does that matter specifically in regard to this? In my opinion, right, like we've we've traded convenience uh, for security and uh, we've traded convenience for actually to become the product in a lot of ways. And as we become the product for, you know, big tech or these these data mining companies that just specialize in, in, in essentially parasitic activities where they're pulling your information constantly. What it's allowing us, these people to do is is target us as, as individuals, um, target us as families, target us as communities, and really shape these influence operations around our individual ideologies, around our individual belief systems. And as they understand those better, they can start to manipulate those slowly. And that's the other thing. I think with, with hybrid warfare, you know, we're used to, you know, especially our, probably our age group here on this specific Zoom meeting here, you know, we watch Desert Storm. You know, we watch the lightning going up into Baghdad and, and breaking that down. And that's, you know, that's probably where when we look at OIF, right? It's this big long run up. We, we blow everybody's stuff up and then we sit down inside of these these communities. But that's not what hybrid war is, right? It's 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 a long-term campaign generally that is strategic in nature. And so really when we look at the United States. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical of it, but I'm looking at it maybe through a lens of an individual that's in retrospect going, Hey, we, we did go into Fallujah and Ramadi and all these places. And we set all these combat outposts, but it was the influence operations that we were missing, right? It was trying to understand the cultural the culture of the, the tribes inside of those cities and trying to influence those guys to be our friends, like make them understand, hey, we're here, you know, we're here to, to save your country. And that never really gone across. And, and so now it's, it's interesting because you're, you're watching uh, over the last four years with Syria, right? The Russians have gone in there and it's been hybrid war inside of Syria. And they mixed that all in there. First, it was the information and, and you know, and then they went out there and they just completely crushed entire cities. I mean, you know, you look at uh, some of those places out in Eastern Syria and you're like, wow, that is what war looks like. Josh, if, if I may, let me, uh, let me throw something out of you because I think it'd be good to kind of bring it back to what we're experiencing here in the United States as, uh, really people who have been under attack from hybrid warfare. And just to set the stage a little bit, as we talked about before we got started, I've been working on the manuscript for my new book, The Rise of the Digital Mob. And one of the things that it has led me to do is to take a look at the structures that the Russians put in place, particularly in the 1950s. And one of the things I was fascinated to discover was that the KGB set up a Section D. And that stood for two things. It stood for disinformation and it stood for decomposition. And disinformation is pretty straightforward, right? They're going to put stuff out there to make us look bad and, and to make communism look better and all the rest of that. 
Decomposition, though, is the subtle one because that was aimed at weakening our belief in the institutions of democracy, weakening our belief in Europe and NATO. And the thread that I'm trying to follow is the way in which the Russians and now other players have used the technology that we've developed from computers to social media to attack the fault lines of American society, to really prey on our disagreements. And so we need to recognize that we are being manipulated in very concrete ways. And I'd love your thoughts on that and especially what we can do to help protect kids. Yeah, so so it is really information is such a powerful tool. I, I you know the first time I heard it, I was like, uh, you know, I, I was kind of the traditionalist, right? The sword is mightier than the pen type guy. Well, what I've found is is that it is absolutely the opposite. And and so you know, as we talk about the big tech stuff and what we're seeing with the censorship, what we're seeing with you know, message the cancel culture kind of mentality. That is the mob, and so. It, it's it really that's what frightens me, Fred. Is is that we have now what I would call virtual countries, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter. They're like you know, they may as well have their own flag, right? Because they are making nation state level decisions now. We, well, yeah. if I can jump in, look at look at the fight with Facebook and Australia. That was the, you're you're absolutely right, Josh. That was two effectively nation states battling over how information will be distributed. And of yeah. course, Facebook is bigger than any nation on earth. And it is, right? Like, so there's what, 2 billion users or something on Facebook or something like that. That's more than the Chinese. That's more than the Indians, right? And so they, they very easily could go in and, 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 you know, I, I, I was trying to, before when I was prepping in here, I was thinking about, well, why do these people have so much capability, you know, and it's because the barrier to entry has lowered on technologies, right? You have now, not that I'm smart enough to do it, but, but you can be out of your garage with a supercomputer, building artificial intelligence algorithms that can sort through information. They, these companies have incredible power and, um, in the community that I deal with, right? We have ITAR, right? International trading arms agreements, right? So, so I can't, if the state department says that this marker is weapons grade, I can't send it to a, a list of countries. That is not where we're at. Like these, com these, these companies, whether it's Facebook, or Twitter, they have algorithms that are weapons grade and nobody can say anything to them. And they, they are, they have basically a blank check to go out there and manipulate information however they want. And that, that really getting back to youth is determined by the board of that company, their economic drivers, their, their key performance indicators, their, the people that are paying for advertising, they can manipulate all of that. And, and as parents, we have very little that we can do to stop that, you know, and that's a tough, it's a very tough thing to, to stop. Well, and this to me is one of the main concerns that with those algorithms, you can get into an echo chamber and see the, the kinds of things that will push you to extremism. And we have extremism in all directions. It's not just right and left, but it is other things as well. 
right and left is the easy one where there's definitely division going on. But what, what frightens me is the idea that you can, you can start pushing people in that direction. And then you don't need someone to say, here's what you have to go and do. But because they are all up in a frenzy in a mob like situation, then they start taking the initiative and saying, because I believe this, this is what I need to do. So it becomes much more challenging to corral that kind of behavior. It comes much more challenging to identify who is leading it and who's making those decisions. Because as much as we love to say that it's Trump's fault that there was an insurrection in the Capitol, that's not necessarily the case, even though people are very clearly pointing to that and saying that. As much as we like to say that Barack Obama was a great president, he did promise to close Guantanamo Bay and then didn't. And once you get in those positions, you learn different things that make an impact and you can't necessarily make unilateral decisions like we feel like we could have made in the past. And what I see is that it's becoming more apparent now. Yeah, and you know, one of the phrases that we use a lot in the in militaries is, is once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in, right? And so when you, when you talk about extreme viewpoints, you know, again, like you said, it can be right, left, whatever. Once, once you excite a, a crowd and that mom mentality takes over, like Fred's talking, you, you can't control it. It, it. it has to, it has to live out its lifespan until it comes to a natural conclusion. Right. So, so, you know, I, I, I kind of hesitant to bring up the mask situation. Right. But, but you have a lot of people that don't want to wear masks. Right. But they, what they've done is they engineered the message to shame you to wear the mask. And they did that on purpose in, in, in many cases, right. They ran studies on what messages are going to be the most effective. And, you know, I've had COVID, I survived. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because what I'm seeing uh, from my perspective is, is that it is that, that one topic, political or not, safety or not, however you want to cage it, is creating division in the community that I'm a part of. And that is my religious community. And that to me is very, very scary because now you have an entity that has inter- interjected itself into your community and is causing division and you can't control that. And so now it's like, well, how do you, how do you handle information like that? You know, I, I don't know how we put the genie back in the ball for some of these things, but I wouldn't say, you know, getting back to our kids and, and with Twitter and Facebook and some of these social media platforms, I, I do think that it's time now for them to be regulated to some degree. I think that they have access to too much information and there's no way to audit or put that power in check. Well, I, I think instead of trying to put the genie back in the bottle, you expose that the genie is out and then you deal with that rather than, you know, trying to go back to the way it was. It's already out there. We're not going to be able to stop it at this point, but regulation is one way and there are several other ways to do that. Go ahead, Fred. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion because the, well, Josh, I think you raised a couple of different points that I wanted to touch on. And and I think you're right in terms of some of these controversies that are disrupting the communities we belong to. And I think what I'm focusing on is 
the fact that the controversy itself is the thing that is weaponized. The fact that these disagreements arise, there are wedge actors, I call them, coming at us from a variety of different angles, whether it's our own domestic politics or it's our culture, which is an omnipresent issue all the way around, or it's foreign actors who obviously, because we put so much information out in the world, are aware of the things that are causing problems for us in our communities, in our churches, in our politics. The issue that we confront, and Jethro and I talk about this on our, on our podcast periodically, is that the United States was at the forefront of free speech. We were the first nation to create a right to free speech, and that's the perpetual tension. I mean, my wife writes about censorship in art all the time, and we grapple with this in the society. How much speech should we allow and who's going to do the regulating? And I think it's going to be very, very challenging. The thing that I'd like to press on a little bit is this idea that you are making an argument a little bit like weaponry or nuclear capability, that the tools that these companies have are now so dangerous. And maybe that's a way to come at it. I 100, you know, obviously I brought it up for, for that reason. Exactly. Fred, I, these guys have access to information about me and my family that I don't even know. Right. They got, so, so I went on and I was thinking about this cause I just closed my Facebook profile. I deleted it, deleted it. Right. So my first access to Facebook was in 2008. So in 2008, I was uh, in San Diego at the time, you know, we still had four kids at home, but my virtual shadow on that platform, including, you know, probably about four gigabytes worth of photos and videos. But more importantly was I went through what, three, three or four elections since then. And so obviously they had captured all of my political nonsense when I'm getting all fired up, you know, it was, you know, out in, um, I was in Washington, D.C. in 2012 for that run up. So there was a lot of that. So the thing is, is, your digital shadow never goes away. And who ends up picking the winners and losers in the future? We don't know that. And so that's what worries me about like my kids and what I'm constantly telling them is that you need to be careful about your online behavior. You need to be careful about what you say online. You know, and you bring up the First Amendment piece. I don't know where we stand with that anymore, friend, because we've gotten to a point now with here I am as a dad, right? Warning my kids, be careful what you say online because it might come back to haunt you. It's well, not, and that's right. not even like sexing or any of that crazy stuff. It's just your words are going into some neuro linguistic program and they can tell. Whether you're hostile or not, angry or not. Oh my God. There's so much to unpack there, Josh. You're absolutely right. Look, I, you know, a core piece of all of this is our use of the word free, right? And, you know, the concept of free speech under the first amendment is pretty clear cut that the government or its agents is not allowed to shut down our ability as American citizens to speak. I think that one of the things that I run into, and I talk to my own kids, I have four boys, uh, dad and stepdad to two each. So we've had a lot of conversations about this over the you know last 20 plus years. 
And I've, I've had to remind them that free doesn't necessarily mean free from consequences. So you have the right to write something mean about your brother on the wall of the house, which actually happened to us. Yes, that is your free speech right to express your opinion about what you think about your brother. But there are consequences for doing that. And I think that that's one of the issues. The other thing is... Well, hold on. Let me let me talk there for just one second, because I think this is an important dis- discussion, because we're talking about these companies being bigger than governments and acting like governments. And so we are not afforded the right to free speech through these companies, which I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't think a lot of sane people really have a a problem with. We recognize we're using their service and so they get to set the rules. But that's part of the problem is that they are so big and there's no regulation and no, no restriction to them that they can make these arbitrary rules however they want. Well, and I think that here's the irony of it all, right? Is that they are capitalist organizations that are espousing socialist, dictatorial, totalitarian uh, behaviors, right? So well, this this is right in my this is right in my sweet spot, guys. I I am all over this one, but yes, we're you know this is the thing that when I talk to people about the First Amendment, the the conflict, the tension that arises is that these services have grown so big that they look like public spaces. And so the idea is, you know, I've I've stood at the Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London, and that is the epicenter of our tradition of free speech, that you get on a box and you can say whatever you want to say in that public space. And nobody from the government can tell you otherwise. And we now are dealing with these private companies, which are not governed by the First Amendment, But they are, as you guys are pointing out correctly, so enormous that there seems to be a a similarity between their space and the public spaces we're used to. And so the question, we're going to have to grapple with this because this capitalism is fundamentally autocratic. That's, that is the design of it. You know, you have a, a board and a CEO and they make the decisions. So we're going to have to grapple with this. If you have a board. (laughs) Well, right, right, (laughs) exactly. You may not, but we're going to have to grapple with this concept of capitalism and how it interacts with speech, Josh, because I think you're making a really valid point about the potential for these algorithms to be misused. Well, I, you know, and I haven't, because we're not authorized to look at the stuff Snowden provided. Right. And so the only thing I've ever seen on it was the, uh, an article in, uh, Wire magazine. So when Snowden dumped all that stuff, it was back, what, 2011, 2012. And at that time, they were already at that time utilizing streams of metadata from our personal information to create caricatures of us as individuals out there and to try and, derive intent um, of individuals. You know, I, I love movies like Minority Report. I love movies like this Eagle Eye movie. And, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> you know and it's, it's interesting because they're, they are almost prophetic, right? Because it's like, at some point, who's, who's the one that determines the future crime, right? Or what is the algorithm that activates you as an individual? Um, 
And that to me, it does. I, I, I don't think it's the uh, stuff of fables and movies anymore. I, I think that these are things that can be used by organized crime, by cartels, um, you know, but let alone nation states. It's, it, it is being used against us, you know? Oh, absolutely, Josh. Look, I mean, you know, the concept of Minority Report, right, is that they collect enough data about you to be able to predict your behavior. It's not a huge step from them predicting what products I want to look at in my browser to that next level of behavior. Let's talk a little bit more about the the data shadow or the virtual shadow, because from a metaphorical point of view, that that calls to mind one of the phenomena of the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where one of the byproducts of that explosion were the shadows of where people stood. And it maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but the, it seems to me that in data terms, we're leaving these shadows of ourselves behind. Also, so one of the things that I've thought about recently on that, Fred, is, is what if what if Josh Howell or Jethro or Fred wanted to run for public office, right? And I'm an operative for the opposing party, and I go, hey, Company X, I want everything that, that Josh Powell has ever looked at in the last 30 years. There's your nuclear weapon, right? I can now... I can now strategically eliminate competitors out of the market because they looked at something that was inappropriate 30 years ago or whatever, right? And and guess what? There's no rules for what was inappropriate. They get to arbitrarily make those up as the game goes along. The rules are made up as the games go along. Yet, they have this encyclopedia of your behaviors, your online habits, where you go, when you were there, and to me, that is insanely powerful. If you were to take stuff like those are the types of tools that seriously that nation states only had the CIA, the, the, the NSA, the KGB, like you referred to earlier, right? They are the only ones that used to have that 20 years ago. And in the last 20 years, that's over with. You know, you, you see in the military, we can't even wear fitments on military installations because it was mapping the bases down to uh, like less than a meter. It was better than what they had from satellites. <laughs> I read about those cases. They were absolutely amazing. Let me ask you this then, Josh. I mean, there were behaviors. You know, one of my favorite stories is a friend of mine works as a U.S. attorney and somebody wanted to apply to the office and, you know, just a low-level attorney job. But he said to my friend, I have a 20-year-old pot bust. Is that going to keep me out of the job? And the guy burst out laughing. He's like, you'd, you'd empty the office, you know, if that was the standard. So do you think that things, that social standards will change so that some of this is less dangerous? No, no. I, I think I think that, uh, you know, the die has been cast on that, Fred, honestly. I think that. You have very vocal opponents in there, and they can they can pick and choose what's important at the time, right? We watched sexual scandals on both sides. We watched domestic abuse on both sides. We watched firearms charges, drone charges, all of that been swept under the rug. And then, depending on whether you're you know popular at the moment or maybe you are a threat to the standard to the organization, 
that's when those nuclear weapons come out and then they make the rule up as you go. And I think that piece, Josh, is really important because you are operating from a defensive only position and you can, you can never be on the offensive if you are in that situation. And somebody else can say, you know, you could divulge everything that you've ever done and someone can still find something and, and bring that out and attempt and whether or not it works is a different conversation, but they can still attempt to smear you for that. And the thing is, is that this happens not just in political office, but also with uh, school principals, CEOs, anybody in any sort of leadership position, these kinds of things can happen. This, this for campaigns are real. And, and, it, and that's all it takes anymore is one, a single whisper to ruin someone's career. And I've seen that happen two or three times over the last, you know, decade where that's all you got to do. You with sexual misconduct, anything with a child, you're done. And well, it, it, to be fair, some of those responses are appropriate, right? Look, I disagree, right? Like I, I saw the other day and I, I didn't, I didn't read into it, but basically a young lady was on crying that her perpetrator was allowed to be, to stay in the reeds, right? And I don't know the details of that case. And, and I'm sure that she probably had reasons for doing exactly what she did, but there is no fair court in in public opinion and you can you can literally ruin somebody's life with a lie and you know, that is hybrid warfare right and it just seems to me and, and, and that's the part that i don't i'm not understanding these days you know being in my mid-40s here is how are some of these people seemingly above it right like we've watched these big tech guys get dragged in before the senate and congress uh, a number of times now and essentially spend it however they want, walk out and then do the exact opposite. But if me and you, the three of us were to do that, like it very easily, yeah, we could be slammed with litigation and slander and, and all these things. And well, let me, let me give you a short answer to that, Josh. Um, one of the things that got me started on my writing career was the communications decency act of 1996. And as part of that legislation to protect a company that had, um, hosted information about a stock deal, oh, it was prodigy at the time. You may remember it. Um, although it's kind of in early days, but anyway, in order to protect prodigy and other services like that, they adopted section 230 of the communications decency act, which prohibits litigation against companies that get content from third parties. And that, of course, is the story of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of that. There's been a little bit of tweaking with Section 230 to deal with sex trafficking, which is an important thing. But there's a lot of impetus on Capitol Hill, I think, right now to try to reframe Section 230 so that litigation could be used against some of these companies. And maybe they would be a little bit more careful about how they use their algorithm. Well, and to Jethro's point earlier, right? Like it, it, the, the genie's out of the bottle. How do, how do you deal with it? Right. And, and it is, I think that they, maybe it's not under section 230. Maybe it's, it's whole, a whole nother piece of legislation, but I, I hope that our representatives and I don't call them leaders anymore. I've changed my, I've changed my vernacular on that recently. Our representatives up there 
I hope that they, they get something figured out that's fair, fair to the public. Right. And I don't even like that word anymore. Fair. Right. Cause it, what is fair? But anyway, I apologize because I'm kind of, um, we've kind of spun down here, but I, I do worry about our youth. I do worry about the, the implications of leaving this digital shadow for forever. And, um, when you look at totalitarian regimes, right, whether it's Chinese or, or the Russians or, or whomever, right, they punish the family of perpetrators. And so it's sometimes the threat against your family is more powerful than the threat against yourself. And I think that that's an important component to this, that if, if somebody was to threaten my, my wife or my children, I would capitulate much quicker than if it was towards me. And, and I don't think that that's lost on some of these um, bad actors out there. Uh, certainly that's a tool that's used by pedophiles and molesters when they're grooming their targets, right? And so it's, it's, I think it's much the same way. I think as a society, we're being groomed by whoever you want to talk about, big tech, by the government itself, but we are being groomed as a society to accept these infringements on our, our rights. And I, I just, I hope that people will recognize it for what it is. And that is, it is a hybrid war against our freedoms here in the country. And that affects the safety of our children. And that affects the safety of our individual liberty. And that's really, that's what scares me. Well, from my perspective, I think the thing that is most destructive and is the thing that parents should spend the most time thinking about is the fact that these services are using tools designed to rev us up, to use that phrase that you used at the start, because the emotional content of our participation is what fuels engagement, what fuels their revenue models and all the rest of it. So from their perspective, allowing bad actors, whether it's a nation state or a political party or whatever, to tap into that emotional mechanism is all to the good for them. And so what we have to reflect upon is we're lab rats. You know, that's the thing. We're being, we're being manipulated and we're being used for a long-running experiment on human emotion. No, I mean, I just... That that is absolutely the case. And we I think we've been ignorant of that for many years. And some people haven't been, and they've refused to do any of this technology stuff and refused to join Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But I think the rest of us have just gone along with it because it's it's easy and it and it's it's nice to be able to stay in touch with family. And we use that as an excuse and stay in touch with friends, but that's not really what it's not what it's turning out to be what it's there for. And, and that's the part that's really frightening to me and something that every day I think, man, am I doing enough to teach my kids? Am I doing enough to keep myself safe and, and really think hard about that? Because it's, it is pretty scary to be honest. Going back to like this land rats concept, right? So when you put a, a rat in there, what do you generally, it's the reward model. You, you have a piece of cheese at the end. And, um, they built that into that user interface, like, and share, like, and share, right? Because that's how it's monetized, you know? And so, so there is a reward for us, uh, 
in the end on that. And they know what they're doing in, in training that in our, our synapses inside our brain. There's a reward that's given to us at the end. And so, so, you know, to your point, Jethro, I, I don't, I'm obviously not smart enough to run a gazillion dollar, you know, tech company like that, or I wouldn't be sitting in my basement, but it is frightening that, that individuals that we have no understanding of their value systems. We have no understanding of their upbringing, how, what their online habits are. The ground is not level in any way, shape or form. And when a, when a, a political person goes into office, generally they are vetted to some degree, right? Certainly when you're in national service, right? And you're going in for a security clearance, you fill out about a 20 page EKIP SF86 and it has to show out in the last 10 years of who you're dealt with. It's asking you about your drug use, your, your other behaviors, you know, whether you're bankrupt, you, all those things are, are filled out in that document because they, they are entrusting you with information that could cause grave damage to the country, right? None of that. None of those same standards are applied towards these individuals because they are a corporation. And so the, the lens definitely needs to be turned on them. I think that the heat needs to be turned on them. And that is not as a, it's not to spite them. And that's not a political thing. That, that is uh, surely from the perspective of protecting the foundation of our country. And, and they, I think that our perspective as individuals needs to change in relationship to big tech. And we do need to start looking at them more as a uh, uh, nation within a nation. I, I think that's a really good observation. It, it seems to me that some careful scrutiny would make a big difference in terms of the challenges that parents face in protecting their kids and raising their kids. Obviously, parents have the primary responsibility for what their kids see and what devices they use and so forth. But, you know, we we expect government's help to keep the food safe. We expect government's help, you know, to keep the roads safe. There are things that that can be looked at to be in a cooperative position with parents. And it's always more tricky when you're dealing with speech and ideas and all the rest of that. I get that. But if it's, it, I come at it from a product safety point of view. And it seems to me that these products or services are verging on weapons. safe <laughs> or, or what? Or weapons as we discussed. Right. Yeah. You guys say that because I, I've had groups of, uh, of parents, you know, during different church kind of in-service type things. Right. And, and I'll, I'll pull my, I'll pull my cell phone out and I'll, I'll tell them, I'll say, Hey, this is this right here is the equivalent of having your, your child a loaded 45 pistol. And if you don't teach them how to utilize that right, they can shoot their toe off or worse, right? And it's the same thing with our phones. We're handing our kids high data rate. I honestly, and I tell you, I work with more networking, right? Cell phones are pretty much way more advanced than what we're dealing with in the military these days. <laughs> and and that's, that's news I don't need to hear, honestly. <laughs> So, so the thing is, is we're handing these, these kids, again, we're handing them a weapons grade device that, that can access information at light speed and it can actually disappear that information with a clink of the thing and poop, your, your history is gone and mom and dad have no idea what you looked at. 
And so, you know, I've got one friend and, and uh, I'll, I'll just kind of shout out to him. His name's Scott Boyer. And, you know, Scott, he's, he was a networking guy I worked with for, for a number of years and just, just a great guy. And, um, but, but that's what he did for a living. He was a networking guy. And he set up inside of his house. He literally can look at every traffic, the IP addresses and everything going in and out of his stuff. And he does an audit on his network. And, um, so he can tell what his boys are accessing at home. And, um, you know, right. I've always really looked up to him for that because I'm like, wow, that is an engaged parent. I scared the daylights out of my kids. Cause that one of my other threads of my life is computer forensics. So I've spent oh, 20 years, <laughs> I've spent 20 years digging around in computers. And when my kids were young, I would sit them down and say, you know, actually it doesn't matter if you delete it guys, cause I've got the software to go in and pull it back up. It was, um, very helpful actually. The hybrid warfare stuff, it, it really does. Um, it is applicable, uh, to what's going on with our youth today. I think that as, um, individuals that listen to this podcast and they were to look, you know, just type in hybrid warfare or information operations. I think their eyes would start to water at how much study is actually being done. And it's not like old stuff. It's not like 2010. No, this is, this is stuff in 2020. Mm. It is, it is cutting edge and people are waking up to understanding, especially in the DOD, how important information, the information environment is to successful campaigns militarily. But I would also say from, you know, kind of this capitalist ideology is if you can turn the will of the people just by pushing stuff to them over and over and over, and they, they finally start to believe it, that's pretty effective because we spent what? I think we spent over a trillion dollars in Iraq in blood and treasure or more. And well, it's a lot cheaper to just put, publish some news and not have to send people over, blow stuff up. So Yeah, and those links that you're talking about are in the show notes at cybertraps.com. So make sure you go check those out. There's, you know, like five or six research reports that um, are from the DOD uh, think tanks and others that you can, you can check out and just reading through that and seeing, you know, this one that was updated in 2020 is, it's a little bit crazy that, uh, how aware everybody is of it and how much is out there. So I want to say thank you, Josh, for being part of the program today. This was an excellent conversation and really fascinating and certainly wide ranging as well. <laughs> yeah. And Josh, I'm going to leave you with just one quick thought here. Um, Back in 1984, Stuart Brand said that information wants to be free. And what he was talking about was the cost of distribution and the idea that it, you know, the cost of getting a piece of data from point A to point B, once the internet really spun up, was going to go to zero. And what he didn't really think through were the implications of making it so inexpensive, as you were saying, to put content out in the world. And so what we are grappling with now in, in one respect is the successful 70 year campaign of the Russians to decompose our democracy. And I, I think you've touched on all of these great points and I really appreciate your time tonight. Well, hopefully you guys will have me back. Hopefully it wasn't too rambling because it has been wide ranging. Um, but, but it is, it's a fascinating subject. And I think that, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys letting me come on, uh, and, and speak with you today. 
I, I do want everybody to know that, you know, at the end of the day, I really love this country. I love the foundation that this country was built on. Uh, I've spent my adult life uh, trying to protect the tenets of the Constitution, right? Whether that was good, bad, or indifferent. I want to see this country in perpetuity for my own children and for my grandchildren, for your kids, right? And that, and that isn't a political statement. That is something that we we can all come together on. And um, I just, I really uh, appreciate what you guys are doing to protect our youth by sharing this information. I wish you guys the best of success with this. And, and again, I'd love to come back at some future date. Well, thank you, Josh. We have been blessed by our guests, of which you are now one. And yes. uh, we certainly would like to thank you for your service on behalf of the country and, and the Constitution, however much in need of amendment it may be. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share this show with your colleagues and friends and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the Cybertraps podcast. Bye.